Romans 3.21 is a good division. It begins a new section in the book of Romans. In the previous section, which was Romans 1.1 through 3.20, Paul made his thesis statement, I think, for that section, and is found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's main point in that first section of Romans is that the righteousness of God is something that humanity, that is both Jew and Gentile, needs but lacks. We saw that last week as Rob Shepard covered the first 20 chapters or 20 verses of chapter 3. And you could tell he didn't like teaching that. And that's because we were confronted with our sins. We are confronted with our lack of righteousness. It's like during the morning service when you get beat up by the law and you are confessing your sins and then the elder forgets to do the assurance of pardon. We're left there in our sin and in our misery and it's an uncomfortable feeling. And it should be uncomfortable. And that's why Rob Shepard was so uncomfortable last week teaching those first 20 verses. He wanted to give you the assurance of pardon, but he didn't want to steal my thunder. He's a good elder. All right. So let's talk about this next section of Romans, beginning in chapter 3, verses 21, and on through chapter 8. So the second section, 3... 21 through chapter 8, and it details how God has remedied that problem of the first three chapters. It, it shows us how God has given the righteousness of God to undeserving sinners. It's a gift that's received through faith. This gift is imputed righteousness of God to sinners. This gift is received by faith alone. We see that in today's lesson. We will see that in today's lesson. We'll also see this um, hammered by Paul in chapters 4 and 5. Paul will also deal with the assurance of, that Christians have in light of our possession of this gift. Paul also shows that this gift of righteousness does not undermine or undergird, but it, but it undergirds the believer's call to holiness, to sanctification, and to right living. Paul will make the important claim that imputed righteousness, that is righteousness that is credited to us, or justification, is always accompanied and followed by what he calls imparted righteousness. That is righteousness that enables the believer to strive for holiness and victory over sin. This doctrine of imparted righteousness is, is synonymous with that doctrine of sanctification. So let's jump into Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now that we've gotten an overview of, this, of the entire section, let's focus on the first uh, or the last 10 or so verses of chapter 3. So having shown in the previous section that all humans, that is both Jews and Greek, lack and need righteousness, Paul begins this new section with, but now. So let's take a look at, and I'm going to read for us, 
and I forgot my phone, which means I don't have my Bible. I want a Bible. Can you imagine an elder show with <laughs> And he brought me his hot chocolate, too. You want my pen? No, I've got a pen. All my notes are in there if you need my All right. I appreciate that. All right. Let's take a look. Sorry about that, folks. This is what happens when you do things live. All right. We're going to read uh, 3, 21 through 26. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through this redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This, is, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be justified and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul wants to tell his readers, so what, so what Paul wants to tell his readers is where and how this righteousness of God may be obtained. And it, and, it, and it does not come from within us. And in fact, Paul says it is apart from the law. So it does not come from law-keeping, but instead this righteousness comes from God. It is the only righteousness that is acceptable to God. This righteousness has been made manifest. It says right there in that first, in verse 21, it's been made manifest. It's been made known. Since when? Well, look again at that second part of verse 21. Paul says that the Old Testament prophets bore witness to it. They wrote of it for all to know. And then in verses 22 and 23, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says that we may obtain or receive this gift only through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And notice the specificity here. Paul doesn't say through faith in God, nor in the general truths of Christianity, but, in, but specifically in Jesus Christ. Paul is directing our faith to the object of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And it comes without distinction, because verse 23, all of us, that is all men, all women, both Jew and, and Gentile, have sinned. We have missed the mark, we have erred, we have done wrong, we have neglected our duty, and so we are exposed to the curse. And all of us fall short of the glory of God. Paul will not let us forget that our depravity is universal. It's without distinction. It is in part where we get our doctrine of total depravity. So our first discussion question here is, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean? This is, uh, uh, I mean, everybody knows this verse, right? Everybody knows this verse. Oh, you found my phone. Thank you. Okay. Right? Not reflecting his glory. Okay. 
What else? Okay. Not giving him the glory as we should. Okay. So we fall short of our glory. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. There are three verses in the New Testament, I think, that help us to understand that. And those are all good answers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So then we have to ask ourselves, Is everything I do to the glory of God? Or do I fall short? John 5, says that we're prone to seek the glory from man and not from God. So if that's true, we're falling short of the glory of God since we're seeking glory from man. And then 1 Peter 5 and verse 4 says that, it, that we receive the crown of glory that God bestows. So I, let me ask us, are we ready to receive that crown of glory now? Or do we fall short? For now we fall short. And we will fall short until we obtain that glorified state in heaven. So we're going to fall short of the glory of God until we get to heaven. All right, verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We not only receive the gift of righteousness without distinction, but we are also justified. And this justification is also a gift given to us and we really don't deserve it. It's given to us by grace. Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism defines justification. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. It says that justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous, but only because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to us even though we don't deserve it and it is received by faith alone. So how does this gift come to us? Look at verse 24 again. How does that gift come to us? It comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus redeems us from the guilt of sin by bearing in his body at the cross the penalty for our sin. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is, what's redemption? And it might be helpful to um, consider redemption in four different ways. And I've listed them for you in your handout. The first one is monetary redemption. Your car gets repossessed for non-payment. Someone pays what you owe so that you can get your car back. That's monetary redemption. Avenger redemption. Someone is attacked or hurt in some way. And a close friend or a family member brings the perpetrator to justice. That's the avenger redemption. Kinsman or widow redemption. 
If a man dies without having children, his brother, his uncle, or a cousin had the legal obligation to marry the widow that he left behind. Of course, this is most clearly seen as Boaz in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. And then number four, spiritual redemption. We see that in the Old Testament, and generally it is used to explain the liberation from foreign rule. In the New Testament, we see Jesus suffering God's wrath that we deserved in our place, thus paying the penalty for our sins. So that's redemption. The redemption that Paul speaks of is in Christ Jesus. It was affected by him. He made it effectual to us. The price was paid by him. The redemption is applied to us when we believe in him. We are not redeemed by Christ's example, but by laying down his life as a ransom or a payment for us by his blood, by his death, by his stripes. To believers, the effect of redemption is full. It's complete. It is gratuitous. In other words, it is unearned. It is eternal salvation. It brings great glory to Christ to have saved a people for himself. Let's take a look at 25, just the first part of 25. It says, Whom God put forth, that is Jesus, as a propitiation, there's another big word, propitiation by his blood to be, to be received by faith. Paul then describes Jesus as the one whom God has put forth as a propitiation by his blood. So here it gets a little bit complicated when you look at the Greek word for propitiation. The best I can tell from reading a, a few commentaries is that Paul is using the same Greek word as used in Hebrews for mercy seat. Mercy seat. So some Bibles will translate this word here in Romans, propitiation, as mercy seat. Other translators use sacrifice of atonement. So you might see it... Um, in your, depending on your translation, you might see it as propitiation, mercy seat, or sacrifice of atonement. They all fit together. And one commentator wrote of, of this, and I thought it might be helpful for us. One commentator wrote, In the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the physical location where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was offered. In the New Testament, it is the cross. That was the physical location where Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, was offered up and his blood poured out on our behalf. The Old Testament mercy seat looked ahead to the atoning work of Jesus while the cross looks back at the atoning work of our Lord. In this way, the cross has become a useful symbol to represent Jesus as both the mercy seat and the atoning sacrifice that was offered there. So I think, it, I think this helps us as we think about this word propitiation, sometimes translated mercy seat, as the atoning work of Christ. If you look up atonement in the dictionary, you might see something like a payment made for an injury caused. A payment made for an injury caused. So the injury was our sin. And the payment for our sin was the death of Christ. So now let's talk about this phrase, by his blood. 
You'll see that in that verse there. By his blood. It says Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. This tells us that the blood of Jesus that we are to receive is, is by faith. Some might, someone, though, might say, well, if it only requires some blood for our atonement, is one drop enough? Is one drop enough? What do you all think? Okay. Can Jesus atone for our sins with one drop of blood? Yes? Anybody else? That's very brave. Nobody else wants to take a stab at it. The answer is Jesus didn't simply have to bleed. He had to die because the penalty for sin is death. So when the Bible says by his blood received by faith, it means we are saved by his death because that's what's required to pay our penalty for our sins requires the death. And then verses 25, the second part of 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we see that this gift of righteousness demonstrates God's upright character and in his patience and forgiving of our sins, both past and present. Sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God punish sin immediately? We could ask ourselves that. Why doesn't God punish our sins immediately? Please know that God is not winking at our sins, but he is forbearing. He is patient so that we may avail ourselves of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God does not neglect the just demands of his own character. Rather, he is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When God spares me and when he spares you, when he gives us the gift of his kingdom and access to heaven, he does not compromise his own integrity to do it. His righteousness is preserved and it's maintained throughout. The next section of this section of Romans is 27 through 31. 27 through 31. I think it's on the flip side. Here Paul is asking some rhetorical questions. He asks six rhetorical questions of which he provides answers to. So let's take a look at these questions. Verse 27, then what becomes of boasting? It's almost as if He's looking for something that he can't find. Where's the boasting? Where is it? Can't find it. And then he answers his question. It is excluded. You may not boast in your salvation as if you deserve it. Then there's two more questions. By what kind of law? By a law of works? And he answers that as no, but by a law of faith. Paul is saying that the doctrine of salvation, which comes to us by grace through the works of Christ, excludes, it forbids, it does not allow for boasting in our own obedience. If our justification was even in part a matter of our own works, we would have something to boast about. But it isn't. 
so we can't. It crushes the voice of human arrogance and human pride. He then goes on further to explain this question and answer regarding faith and works in verse 28. Verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is this verse more than any other single verse, perhaps, in all of Scripture, which most clearly articulates the doctrine of justification by faith, not by works, but by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from our obedience or attempted obedience um, of the law. So our next discussion question, James 2.17 says, So also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James seems to be saying that it is not faith alone, but faith plus works. How do we reconcile this? Who's right, Paul or James? And you can't just say yes. <laughs> Somebody please explain this to me. Yes! What did you all come up with? Yes. Yes. I think she's on to something. What do you all think? That's good. Yeah. So the issue that James is addressing, it's a different issue than what Paul's talking about here. The problem that James is facing and the and the and the issue that he is is addressing in his in his letter is what good is it if a man says he has faith? but has no works. James is dealing with people who say that they believe. Anybody can say that they believe, so James says, show me your faith by your works. And then he goes on to say, faith without works is dead. Can that kind of empty faith save anybody? No. And Paul would agree. The only way that you'll ever know that my faith is real is if you see it in my behavior. All right, we're getting close. How are we doing on time? Oh, man, we're doing good. That's right. That's right. And so it's, it's so important that we get that order correct. Justification first, and then our sanctification flows from our justification, right? That's that imputed and imparted righteousness that we discussed earlier. Yeah, that's real important. Yeah, I think, I think Jesus is... 
Yeah. Yeah, it also has to do with um, not all that are of Israel are of Israel. Not all that are in the church professing faith are really the elect. Yeah. We can fake it. I think... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mama said. Hmm. Yeah. Because the demons believe and shudder. Yeah. Good. All right. Verses 29 and 30. We get two more questions and an answer. Paul asks, is God the God of the Jews only or also the Gentiles? And of course the answer is that God is the God of both the Jew and the Gentile. The one who will justify both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And not through works, not through your hereditary line through Abraham, but through faith. Paul is saying in his answer to this question, Christianity, he's saying Christianity is a faith without national, cultural, or racial distinctions. Paul's going to return to this topic. He's going to really hammer it home in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And Paul is saying that Christianity is a universal faith. And I think if we, if we think about the Jews hearing this for the first time and how that must have been a shock to them because you know they felt like they were the chosen people and that they had the the fast track right they were in the the HOV lane you know they they had their Georgia peach pass or something like that and so they were um, they were God's chosen people and then for them to hear that no um, and then Paul's going to talk about being grafted in and the, and the branches broken off. And so this is, this is tough. And, and Paul understands it because Paul was a Jew, right? He, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and, uh, and he was, his zealousness um, was, was certainly on display. And so, so Paul's sympathetic, I think, to the Jews. And we'll see that in, in preceding chapters where he says my heart is sorrowful and I'm praying for you and so he's he's going to hammer them and he's going to preach against them for the unbelieving Jews just like unbelieving Gentiles but he knows this is extra hard for the Jews to hear all right verse 31 Paul ends the chapter with his final question and answer and it's a strong reaffirmation of both law and faith. It says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul's wanting to make sure that we just don't go crazy and think that because we're justified and because of our justification is by faith alone that the law is done away with, that it is overthrown, as he, the word that he uses 
It is overthrown by this law of faith. Paul wants us to understand that one does not invalidate the other, but rather each was given by God for a particular purpose. The law's moral instructions remain valid, even though its ceremonial and civil roles have been fulfilled. So this really is good news that is needed to overcome the problem that we saw in Romans 1.1 through 3.20. This section is the assurance of pardon. Paul doesn't forget to give it. It is the righteousness of God that we need, but we lack. And we receive, we receive this righteousness by faith in Christ alone and not by our works. Any final questions or comments regarding these 10 or 11 verses in Romans 3? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we play a role in our sanctification. We don't play any role in our justification. Yeah. That's right. Anything else? Anybody else? We'll, we'll come back next week. Chapter 4 is going to be exciting. We're going to see an illustration and a principal model of the truths that were pro proclaimed in these last 10 or 11 verses of chapter 11. Paul's going to use the life of the father of the faithful, the life of Abraham, to demonstrate um, this gift of righteousness. All right. I'm going to close this with uh, prayer, and then we'll be... We'll be uh, preparing our hearts for worship then. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this reminder from Paul. This reminder that boasting in our own works is excluded. That we cannot merit our own salvation. But thanks be to God that we have received redemption. We have received an atonement for our sin. The justification of the elect through faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son. May you, even now, be preparing our hearts to worship you, to praise you, to think about you this morning. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.